This is the Pilot Photog Podcast. Let's listen to the story of the F-15 pilot who fought in Desert Storm and has just released a new book entitled Call Sign Cluso, an American Fighter Pilot in Mr. Reagan's Air Force. Hi everyone, my guest today is retired USAF Lieutenant Colonel and F-15 fighter pilot Rick Cluso Tolini. Hi Rick, thanks for joining. Hi Juan, thanks for having me on. Happy to be here. In the early part of your book, Call Sign Cluso, you point out key moments in your life that were significant and helped determine your path. One that stuck out to me as I read it was when you went to a party and you talked to your friend Mike. Can you share with us how that conversation basically shaped the course of your life? Yeah, so the, the background on that was I was a student at San Jose State University in the Department of Aeronautics, and my friend Mike Hedden was also a student there. And we had similar goals as many of the students did in that program was to uh, become airline pilots. And we, we pursued that in many different ways. And the funny story that's not in the book, uh, so I'll expand on it, is when we first graduated, we were all kind of like, I would say, California hippies, even though it was, it was in the 70s, it was past the hippie area, but we all had like long hair and, <laughs> and that lifestyle of how we dressed up. And uh, right after we graduated, he told me he was going in the Air Force, which was like, wow, I didn't expect that. And, and then I, he, I saw not too long afterwards, he goes, no, I got to the, I, I was ready to sign the papers at the induction office. And he said, I couldn't do it. <laughs> so, oh, wow. so he, he, he had a pilot slot, but he just goes, I couldn't do it. So he started working for, I think, like Comey, uh, doing like, you know, sales of engine parts or something. And after about a year or a year and a half of that, he quit that. And I didn't know that. And so this was a New Year's Eve party. So I guess it was December 31st, uh, 81, going into 82. And uh, I was teaching at San Jose State. They had hired me as an instructor after I graduated. And one of my students was given a party. So uh, they invited me over and I, I literally wasn't going to go. And then I went and uh, just I just wanted to say hi and meet everybody. And literally, as I was walking in the door, Mike Hedden is walking out leave, to leave the party. Mm-hmm. And it was like, oh, my God, Mike, what are you, you know, what are you doing here? And then why is your hair so short? <laughs> and uh, and so he told me that whole backstory of uh you know, not going in the Air Force and then deciding, oh, I'm going to go back. And he was uh, on his way to pilot training. So he just finished OTS. He was home on leave and he is on his way to pilot training. And he was telling me about how and he was really excited about it. And it was just like such a departure from what I thought we were both trying to pursue that it had never crossed my mind to take a military path in aviation. And after I got through talking with Mike that evening, it just like planted the seed in my head that it didn't take very long to grow. Uh, But I started thinking, well, that's that's a good idea. And Mike's plan was to uh, go to pilot training, maybe get a heavy aircraft transport or something prep for being an airline pilot and get out. And I go, "I, I can do that. Yeah. And so so that was the start of it. And so. The unique part of that, as I outlined in the book, is that if I had not gone to that party or if I just arrived a few minutes later, Mike would have already been gone. And that seed might never have been planted. And I'm not sure 
you know, what direction my life would have gone in that case. So, so I, I try to give a few examples of that in the book of how our life flows in a certain path, but, you know, there's always sometimes little things that we don't notice that, that divert that path into maybe the direction we're really supposed to go. It's incredible that life is really a series of events and some of them are so significant, which at the time they seem insignificant, but they turn out to be turning points. Yeah. And so my hope in people reading the book is not just an aviation story or story about or war story, but that they can see that connection of their own humanity to other parts of life and how we depend on all our human connections for our life to move forward, hopefully in a positive way. But even the, the difficult times are, can create a positive result. You mentioned that you were you were an instructor or a teacher at, at San, San Jose State University. Can you share how those experiences being a teacher and a mentor helped you later in your career? Yeah. So the first part of that was understanding the opportunity I was given because I had literally just graduated. I was a CFI and I was planning just to, I was working as a tow truck driver, uh, as you know, and I said, I'm just going to keep doing this and building flight time. And the director of that department came to me and offered me a job and I was just blown away. And it's like, I didn't ever consider teaching, but I go, well, yeah, I can do that. So I took a pay cut from being a tow truck driver to be a San Jose State University lecturer, instructor. And it was difficult my first semester because I didn't really know what I was doing. But what I learned from that is the students taught me how to be a better instructor. And I learned that I had to adapt my methodology and my my techniques to the individual that I was trying to teach. And I was teaching machine tool skills and, and things like that. So it was not only a lecture, but it was a practical application of what was in the lecture. So that was a very big growth opportunity for me. And I knew, and and the, the department chair, both, both of us knew I wasn't going to be there that long. But I took the two years I was there to become really good at it, I think. And that when I did decide to join the Air Force, I think I came into the program with a certain level of maturity to both receive instruction, but also later in my Air Force career to be able to instruct also from that experience. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said about that. Teaching is as much having knowledge as it is knowing your student or knowing your your audience, so to speak, and kind of tailoring the message to them, right? Yeah. And as you mentioned in your previous question, it's also the process of learning for ourselves and how you actually, in the process of teaching somebody something, you become better at it also. And that's what really carried over into my Air Force fighter pilot career is when I was given an opportunity to become an instructor pilot. It just made me a much better fighter pilot in the process. Your first assignment actually was at Kadena Air Force Base in Japan with the 12th Fighter, is it the 12th Fighter Wing or 12th Fighter Squadron? Uh, At that time, it was 12th Tactical Fighter Squadron. They were called Tactical at the time. They changed that later in the Air Force organization. But yeah, 12th Tactical Fighter Squadron. And with the number 12, they're... Their nickname was the Dirty Dirty Dozen. We we love that name. <laughs> That's great. And can you share your experiences when you first arrived uh, to the Dirty Dozen and how flying in the Pacific was different than stateside or even Europe? Yeah, well, I didn't have anything to base that off of. But the first thing I found out when I went to F-15 training at Luke 
was I didn't know where Kadena was, where Okinawa was or anything and why I was being sent so far away. Uh, but most of the instructors at Luke who had been in at Kadena, they told me, they said, you really got the best F-15 assignment and your opportunities for training there are just going to be better than anywhere else. And that turned out to be true. So Kadena at the time had three F-15 squadrons and an RF-4 squadron, but the Pacific, Western Pacific had a large force of other fighter squadrons in Korea, mainland Japan, the Philippines. And so we were always, always training together. And then they had what we call large force exercises. And in the Pacific, the main one was Cope Thunder, which was part of the Red Flag series of of exercises. So everybody's familiar. I think most people are familiar with Red Flag, that name. Yeah. uh, But don't realize it actually exists in other other locations at, at the time. And what we did at Cope Thunder in the Philippines was huge compared to what they were doing at Red Flag at Nellis. Uh, USAFE had large exercises also, but I think on the basis of size and regular uh, ability to do it, Kadena and the Western, the PACAF, Pacific Air Forces exercise was by far the largest, largest of them and the most frequent. So, so sometimes we would have you know, packages of 60 to 100 airplanes flying on a mission. But part of that was blue forces and some of it was red. But that ended up replicating very close to what we did, especially in the opening weeks of Desert Storm. And I was prepared based off of my experience at Kadena for that. And then I, the mission commanders I selected for Desert Storm were also mainly folks that had flown and performed those types of missions in at Kadena or in USAFE. And because I knew they could handle the complexities of mission planning and being the leader, a mission commander for that kind of mission. So it was truly unique. And then we we got to just to do so much regular fundamental training uh, at a very high level uh, at Kadena. Yeah, few people realize what it takes to put one fighter in the air, let alone, as you said, 60 to 100. Yeah. For a sense of scale, typically, how many aircraft are involved in a red flag exercise versus Cope Thunder? Well, I think at that time, as I recall, they would they would do things like uh, maybe an eight ship of F-15s and, you know, a 12. It would probably be on a, a scale of maybe about 30 <laughs> percent of what wow. we were doing in the Pacific. So, and they've expanded red flag a little bit since then, but they've never done anything again since the eighties and into the early nineties of what we did at Cope Thunder. Part of that changed when the Philippines closed, when Clark Air Base closed. Right. That was a, there was a volcano that erupted, right? That caused it to close. Yeah. We were supposed to go like the next week we were going down to Cope Thunder and Mount Pinatubo exploded. It's like, nope. You're canceled and <laughs> can't do that again. <laughs> yeah. Never going to the Philippines again. It was very sad. That's uh, as you mentioned in the book, the end of an era. Yeah, it was. So in the book, you mentioned um, one of your, I believe he was uh, flight commanders, OPEC. He was his last name. No, that was his call sign. Oh, his call. Uh, oh, okay. I don't know how he got that. Uh, but uh, his last name was Hess, OPEC Hess. He was actually my squadron commander. Okay. Call sign OPEC, your squadron commander, his leadership style. Uh, was very 
straight to the point and he trusted his pilots. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, um, that was not just unique to to OPEC, but it was kind of a tradition at Kadena, but also we had great leaders. Some of them would go on to be like four-star generals and stuff, but there was very high standards expected of everybody. And I think even more so in the 12th squadron from my perspective than the other two squadrons. And OPEC was part of establishing and maintaining the standards of excellence that were expected in our and how we went about our business. But along with that, he trusted us and he trusted us to watch out after each other, to hold each other accountable. And the example I, I gave in the book was we his he had just taken over squadron commander, which is kind of you know high visibility when you first start. And we deployed to the first ever F-15 deployment to Thailand for a pretty big exercise, a similar, very large force exercise. And we expected him just to lay down a lot of rules and restrictions about how we were going to fly and, you know, socialize, I guess you could say. And he didn't say anything about that. At his opening comments, he said, bring the airplanes home safely every day. That's all he, that's all he asked. And that, that just established the sense of uh, trust that we didn't want to, you know, betray. And so we flew very hard. We were, at, we were doing afterburner takeoffs and Immelman departures and coming up initial at 600 knots for the landing, break for the landing. But we just watched out after each other. If anybody got out of line or was doing anything, you know, crazy, we would, we would pull them back in. And... Uh, and so we wanted to repay that trust that OPEC put in us. And for me, that kind of established that leadership skill to expect high standards from your people, but also trust them to do the job. Yeah. There, if there's one rule, it's hard to break it, right? Because there's only one. And, and it also speaks to the professionalism. You're dealing with highly trained, highly skilled professionals. It sounds like he imparted that trust onto you and it was well-founded. Yes. And I, I had other good commanders uh, along the way too. Uh, some of those are outlined in the book. Uh, but I used OPEC as the primary example for both for that experience and other other fortunate mentors I had in my career. Yeah, that sounds like an excellent leadership style. I think we've all had experiences with micromanagers and that never works out well. That's so true. (laughs) (laughs) When it it comes to -to air-to-air combat, in the book, you mentioned how tempo is everything and how that manifests or translates into the ODA loop. That's O-O-D-A. Can you elaborate on that? I could probably give you like a two-hour lecture on it if you'd like. (laughs) Because some of my students here get that lecture. That was something... I more have I came to a re- realization of later in my career, and even now as I'm instructing in the simulator, because I started recognizing that uh, the Air Force doesn't train to tempo sometimes, and we did it naturally through the process of our you know large force employment of our high level of training and and things like that. Uh, to where, let me let me coin another term for you. And this is not mine. I Googled it. I kind of thought about it and I go, let me Google this and see if it exists. And it does. It was called intuitive expertise. Uh, That's what you want to reach as a fighter pilot or as any professional Mm -hmm. is a level of intuitive expertise where you can make uh, decisions 
intuitively quickly. And, and that is part of that whole OODA loop cycle. And the example I give in using that is we do a, a very basic level of training, which is called BFM. It's, it's basic fighter maneuvers. And for your audience that doesn't know what that is, that's one versus one maneuvering in a visual environment, usually within a mile of each other, mile and a half of each other, of where you're fighting either with an offensive advantage or defensive disadvantage against one other aircraft. And the people, and I figured this out after I became an instructor and I had to get better at it, um, that the people who can stay one step ahead of the adversary, even in a defensive posture with the guy behind you, actually gains a quick advantage in the fight and actually forces the adversary to constantly be reacting to him. And in the process of that reaction, you have already analyzed it while it's occurring and selected your next move before he's even finished his last move. And so if that makes sense is that you, you get one or two steps ahead on the OODA loop. Uh, so that's the very basic aspect of it in a one versus one environment. In a larger, uh, and this is not a concept that is unknown, obviously, but in a larger wartime combat concept, it's the same thing is that you press the initiative against the adversary and don't let him recover from that. In other words, you are constantly updating and selecting the next move, the next tactic, the next execution, and the adversaries constantly on their heels. And that's the that's really the art of war, mm -hmm. going back all the way through centuries of, like, if you read Sun Tzu's The Art of War, which I read as a young fighter pilot, it's it's the constant in, in anything in life, but especially in lethal events like combat uh, that you have to use tempo as part of your tactics. Yeah. War is, from what I can gather, is about, it's not about a fair fight. It's about pressing and continuing to press your advantage, right? Yeah. And I think General Patton coined this phrase, and obviously he was well known for his being an operational tactician, but he said, a good plan executed now is better than a perfect plan executed too late. Yeah. And then that's, that's the idea behind the OODA loop and tempo in combat. So the intuitive expertise was the term, correct? Yeah. So that to me sounds like it relates to the 10,000 hour rule where it takes, you know, so much time. And, and what I've heard is from that as well is, or related to that is things start to, you know, quote unquote, slow down. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you kind of can almost step outside of what's happening and, and really analyze everything that's going on, not just what you're doing. That's a perfect description of it, I think. Thank you. So yeah, and that's true of almost any skill that that's learned in life, right? It's that. Yeah, it really is. And, and the, you know, just the average person should, can probably recognize it in their own life experience of when that, when they reach that point. Absolutely. You talk in the book about the age old lesson on, in this case, the air force uh, becoming a little too dependent on technology and its downfalls. Uh, can you elaborate how the human factor works into that and, and almost can counter that? Well, uh, this is nothing new in in life or in business or in warfare that, uh, you know, we always, technology is a great thing and it's the difference maker, office, obviously, and we're always pursuing, you know, improvements and breakthrough technologies. But the man in the loop part of that, even though it seems like it's less important now, it's still, to me, critical 
part of it because that's the that's the unknown. That's the difference maker. Uh, but we went through this in the 1960s uh, when technology was expanding, the fighter jet, more modern fighter jets were coming out and they started coming out with complex radar systems and radar missiles and infrared missiles. And, and everybody thought like, oh, well, you know, this is going to be so easy to shoot down other airplanes, you know. And we, at the same time, we lost a large portion of our experience fighter pilots that had been bred through World War II into the Korean War, and now they were all retiring. And it's like, okay, and we're in the McNamara era. <laughs> like, yeah, we just got all this great technology. And then we found out that doesn't work too good because we were fighting what I, I guess we'd consider a third-rate Air Force in Vietnam, and mm-hmm. they were doing pretty good against us. And so that was the big lesson learned, and that was the birth of things like the fighter weapon school in the Air Force and um, Top Gun in the Navy uh, that, oh, we need to teach, teach fundamental air superiority skills and use the technology in the best way. But that technology is always going to be countered at some point. Yeah. So even if there's an advantage, the, the enemy will figure it out how to counter that advantage or develop similar technology. Um, it's an age old lesson that we learn and relearn. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and after desert storm, we kind of went through the same drawdown and loss of air superiority expertise at the same time that we had new technology coming on board, which was the AMRAM missile, a active radar missile launch and leave radar missile, as people call it, you can fire it and not have to guide the missile all the way to the target. It can do it itself. And then we got stealth technology and, uh, and things like that. And there was no pure competitor at the time. So it was like, well, you know, <laughs> we're doing okay. Right. Well, I, I'm not sure we're, we're doing okay anymore because the, the technology aspect has become a lot more even if you look at the Chinese threat. And, and in some cases could be an imbalance could eventually incur, occur. But the, the key factor to me is it goes back to that intuitive expertise. So what happens when technology becomes predominant in the tactics uh, that we train to is that it creates this slow degradation in expertise becomes, because you become reliant. And once that degradation occurs, unless somebody recognizes it and corrects it, it's like a, it's like a snowball. Yeah. you know, rolling down the mountain is that it gets bigger and bigger and you move farther away from the starting point of where you were. And this is not just my opinion. I talked to old school guys. We call ourselves old school guys and they go, yeah, what's happened. <laughs> so, yeah. And so I, I try to point this out in my book and through other things, but, but I think I use the Maslow's theory in the, in the book. Mm-hmm. When all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Yeah. In other words, you only have a single tool, so you want every problem that you face to fit that tool. That's not the reality of combat. Right. And you have to have multiple tools and skills and expertise in your toolbox to counter the multitude of problems you're going to face in combat, both at the individual level, the tactical, operational, and the strategic level. And when expertise gets diluted by reliance on technology, it's really hard to build that back up. 
Yeah, I think in the book you also mentioned it, it's akin to technicians versus artists, right? You can teach somebody yeah. to push the buttons and run through the steps. Yeah. If you throw a wrench in that, what do you do? Where, you know, how do you react? You know what I found? A lot of times when I'm instructing, when I first get a student into the simulator, and I, I teach some pretty technical skills uh, on some things, and we have to get into pretty heavy-duty thought process of technology and flight profiles and maneuvering the airplane. But I always ask them, I go, what was your degree in? And, you know, if they say aeronautics or engineering or something like that, a technical kind of, it's like, oh, okay. But if they say like, I was a history major or I was an art major, I go, great. I can really work with you. (laughs) (laughs) They're a little more flexible, right? Yeah. Their minds are more open and they see things. It's like, you know, how they say people have certain senses and sometimes like maybe if you're missing a sense like hearing or or sight, you make that up in other ways. Like you can you can see if you can't hear, you can see sound or hear see colors or and it's like there's a fluidity required. You have to have some basic technical, you know, ability knowledge, yeah. but there's a fluidity in, in different people's minds that sometimes adapts best to air combat and air superiority in particular, which is such a fluid environment that if you don't have that fluidity, you can become too strict or restrictive in in your understanding and also execution. So I I don't know how the Air Force tests for fighter pilot skills, but hopefully something like that is in their, in their testing program. Thinking outside the box (laughs) or adaptive, adaptive thinking, right? Or yeah, adaptive thinking really. And, and that goes back to the other part of that is, and the danger of reliance on technology is, is one of our age old themes in the Air Force uh, was flexibility is the key to air power. And that's never changed. In other words, that's a truth, period. Whether you think so or not, or whether you apply that or not, flexibility is the key to air power. And when you become reliant on technology, that flexibility starts to go away. Yeah. It sounds almost like it's a law, right? Like the law of gravity or, or, yeah. you know, it's yeah. like, you can break it, but you're going to be in trouble. <laughs> yeah. You can ignore this, but right. at your own demise possibly. <laughs> That's it. And, and, and that goes back all the way, I think to the world war one, right? I mean, that, that has never changed in air combat. I don't think it goes back through the history of humanity. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. Just ever, <laughs> ever, forever. That's right. Yeah. Some things never change. It's just the the circumstances and the technology, but everything else, the fundamentals. I'd like to, I'd like to switch back over really quick to uh, your, your participation and your involvement in desert storm. Um, Mm -hmm. I know that when you, when you deployed um, you, Oh gosh, sorry. What was the name of the the air base you were at in in Saudi Arabia? Yeah, I was in uh, the 58th tactical fighter squadron, which our name was the gorillas. And I was at Eglin air force base. And I was the, I was my second F-15 assignment. I went from Kadena to Eglin. Then I went to fighter weapons school. So I was the weapons officer who would, who's, he's kind of like the top gun, if you want to use the Navy term for the squadron. So, um, so we deployed from Eglin to Tabuk air base in the Western sector of, uh, Northwest sector of Saudi Arabia in August of 90, 1990. And that was part of uh, Operation Desert Shield, which, of course, yes. became Desert Storm in January of 91. When you got there and you started planning, everyone started planning for des- what became Desert Storm. 
uh, you had a problem with kind of setting up the schedules for having, you know, enough aircraft and pilots available to basically run a 24 hour air campaign. So you came up with, uh, I thought was very brilliant solution on how to get everybody to fly and, and have enough pilots. Can you talk about a little bit about that and how you came up with that plan? Yeah. So the unique part of this was as the weapons officer, I was sent to Riyadh for the very first planning conference. And I, I came back with the initial desert storm plan, the tasking. And I was not, it was very close hold. I was not allowed to tell anybody about it other than my squadron commander and the wing commander who were there deployed with us. Uh, and so I had to work on the plans which were basically the first three days of the war were already planned out. It changed a little bit over the course of the next five months, but I had these taskings and I've just, the manning for an Air Force fighter squadron is called a a manning ratio is, the normal manning ratio is 1.25 pilots per assigned aircraft. And so there was normally 24, at that time, 24 aircraft in a fighter squadron. So 24 times 1.25, you come out to, you know, like 30, 32 pilots. So that's what we had with us. That's what we brought. But that's pilot ratio is okay for normal, just everyday peacetime training. You have enough pilots to fill a schedule that's about a 10-hour flying window every day. But when you go into 24-hour operations, now you find you're, you're running out of pilots, And then the way that airplanes are tasked in peacetime training, you fly, you know, maybe an hour, hour and a half at a time. And if you're going to use the airplane again, it takes time to turn it around and refuel it. And we we train to surge operations, um, which would turn the airplane quickly. But when you go to war, the, the missions are longer. And we had cap missions that started out at two hours and then they became four hours and then they became six hours. And that six hour cap mission was my recommendation to the planners at Riyadh that if you can keep us on cap longer and we'll have some aircraft on standby in case they have to come back early, uh, we can more efficiently provide airplanes for your tasking. So that was good. They understood that and they quickly changed that. Then the problem became how many pilots do we have? And I kept finding we have enough airplanes, but we're running out of pilots. And Riyadh really wanted F-15s on the offensive counter air missions there. That's where those were the missions to go strike targets in Iraq, Baghdad and other places. And you needed F-15s there to protect those bomber aircraft, attack aircraft from Iraqi fighters. They really needed F-15s to do that, and they were having a hard time getting all the units to supply that. So what I did is I came up with a plan is uh, instead of trying to task all our pilots on a 24-hour day, I changed the, the duty cycle of our day to 18 hours. And so what that meant is everybody would fly once in an 18-hour duty day window. And our normal crew rest requirements, pilot rest requirements were normally 12 hours between missions, but we knew we just couldn't do that. Mm -hmm. And so what you would do is you would fly your mission and it sounded like one mission is not much, but they were really long missions uh, normally. And you would come back. And so let's say you flew a mission, a cat mission that was at noon on day one, and you were going to fly another cat mission the next day, that mission would start six hours earlier at 6 a.m. And then if you flew another CAP mission the next day, that would start six hours earlier at midnight. So your day kept get rolling six hours earlier because oh, wow. it was an 18-hour day. 
basically. Right. And, uh, and once I did that, I had, it was like it, it plus our, our pilot availability by that same percentage, like a 25% increase in pilot availability. And it's like, hey, guess what, Riyadh? We can do all those OCA missions you wanted us to do. And they loved it. And the maintenance guys, the maintenance supervisors bought off on it. It was totally out of the box. And the squadron commander, wing commander bought off on it. Uh, but even at that, it was a pretty difficult grind once it lasted more than about a week or two. Is like your body is really not used to that. Uh, and so, but it worked in the, in the time frame we, we needed to use it. It sounds like that's a great example of intuitive expertise, which you mentioned earlier. Um, by that point, you had been making schedules and, and you were, as you said, the weapons officer. So you had been doing this for a while, including with missions over at Cope Thunder. So by the time Desert Storm came around, it sounds like you had that kind of background that enabled you to do this or come up with this. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So all that all that previous experience just kind of flowed into, to, and that, flex, that idea of flexibility is air power and, and being in tune with that is let's just figure out how to make this work. My understanding is that's the Air Force still relies on that kind of uh, pacing today. Is that correct for wartime? You know, um, it's so far away from that. Um, I don't know that they still realize that. <laughs> <So> <laughs> it, I, I think they would remember it or figure it out if they ever needed to. Right. But the big issue right now with the Air Force is is that pilot ratio issue. Is that if you think you can supply all the combat sorties you need by the airplanes you have at a location, you're not going to probably be able to uh, because you're going to run out of pilots. Yeah. Um, and then is there a, enough of a surplus of available pilots somewhere else that are going to be able to augment that? So whatever you think you have in force structure, like we have this many F-22s and we have this many F-15Cs, the actual force structure is probably closer to 60 or 70% of those numbers. Um, and so if you lose sight of that and the importance of having enough pilots, experienced pilots with expertise readily available for long-term 24-hour com combat operations, you could find yourself at a deficit very quickly. And then there's a whole bunch of other issues with the pilot manning uh, right now that, that are kind of on the margins, too. That's a great point. Can you discuss the pilot shortage the Air Force is facing today and the strategies that would help mitigate that? In my era, people just didn't think about military as a possibility. But if you, if you found the right people, literally, they were coming onto the campuses. This is my book is called Call sign Clouseau, and then the subtitle is an American fighter pilot and Mr. Reagan's Air Force president. And, and the buildup of the Reagan era is the rebuilding of American military capability post-Vietnam. They were literally coming to the campuses looking for anybody. And so that pathway of the citizen soldier, or in this case, citizen airman, has to be made available. And the traditional ways of receiving officers into who become pilot candidates into the Air Force of the Air Force Academy and ROTC, maybe it's not a, a broad enough spectrum of quality people that are available in society. So if you present them with, hey, would you like to do this? It's pretty cool. Yeah, I think... <laughs> I think there's a possibility. Maybe my book could kind of open that up or other books that are written in a similar style. 
But um, going back to what I was going to say is one of the big problems is in the 70s to into the 80s and 90s, and especially from the Reagan buildup area all the way until after a desert storm, we had this huge surplus of experienced air superiority expertise in non-flying jobs, non-flying positions. So I would call them, uh, they were like banked. <laughs> they were like your bank deposit or safety savings deposit of pilot expertise. And they were on uh, the, the major command staff. They were doing staff work. Uh, they were in um, alpha tours, and which, which was you were doing something else with your expertise besides flying an F-15. And then you were always coming back to the F-15 or whatever cockpit community. And so that bank of expertise is largely gone now in the Air Force because of of drawdowns, uh, because of those positions being taken over by civilians and contractors like me. And those banked position opportunities are not available. So, so that, that's to me the kind of little bit dangerous part is that not only do you have to meet the ops tempo of combat, but if you have combat losses, you have to be able to replace those over long term. But it might not be a deciding factor in a conflict, but it takes six to 10 years to build that expertise value or the savings, the banked value of that expertise. So you don't recover from that easily if that becomes a a factor. Yeah. In the book, you made the comparison to what was happening to Germany and Japan during World War II, where they, in the first part of the war, they lost all their experienced pilots, where the U.S. was sending back their guys that had combat experience to go train the next group of fighter pilots. Yeah. And we did that. That was kind of like a core philosophy in uh, in assignments and things like that to always maintain that rotating uh, surplus of pilots of leaving the cockpit but coming back, training the young guys with their experience, and then and then you just continue that flow. And the post desert storm drawdown was the very beginning of the erosion of that philosophical aspect of manpower management and rated manpower management. It sounds like it became more of an accounting problem than a practical or experience problem, right? It was just numbers on a spreadsheet. Yeah. And, you know, and that's a problem that applies to every single company and industry. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like when you put profits and numbers ahead of expertise within your organization, eventually it's going to get to you. I'd like to ask you about the opening night sorties that you flew, or I think it was your first day sortie when you had an encounter with uh, what ended up being four MiGs. Can you talk about that? I was the mission commander for the first night's mission. It was the O300 uh, going into Iraq, the very opening of Desert Storm. And I led an eight ship of F-15s that were part of the very first fighter sweep. And this is just a quick synopsis of that. Um, and we shot down uh, three Iraqi aircraft. My number three man, J.B. Kelk, had the first uh, the first shoot down of the war against the Iraqi MiG-29. Uh, but over, we had a series of several other missions after that on a very high tempo again. And then on January 19th, J.B. was his turn to lead a mission. 
So I was his number three. And we had a very, this was one of those very large hundred airplane missions going to Baghdad. Wow. And it got canceled uh, in the morning because of weather in the target area. And I think there were some other things going on because the Iraqis had just shot scuds at Israel. So they canceled all our mission. And then, um, and then I got a call from a friend of mine from Kadena. His name was uh, Spad McSpadden, Richard McSpadden. And he said, we need some eagles to go up uh, and fly a cap for some scud hunters in Western Iraq because they wanted to find the scuds that were shooting at Israel. And uh, it was like, no, nah, we're, we're like totally tasked because <laughs> I, I, we're, you know, we're basically into day three of the war and I knew everything and I'd done all the scheduling. So I knew everything was tasked, but I, and I thought about it, you know, we just landed early. Uh, let me ask our maintenance if they can turn the jets around and get us in the air. And the maintenance guy said, yeah. So about 30 minutes later, I called SPAD back and said, yeah, we can do it. And so literally we just, you know, kick the tires, light the fires is the same. And we're up in the air again. I'm leading the four ship. And we're just waiting around and a, a Navy strike package from the Red Sea uh, Navy forces was going in through our area to hit some targets near Baghdad and then coming out. And we just kind of wanted to move out of the way for several reasons, <laughs> safety being the big one. And then on the process of them leaving uh, their target, uh, some MiGs were scrambled and appeared to be chasing them down. And I, I was able to confirm uh, later through another source that, yes, they were actually chasing them down. So our AWACS in our sector, our Western sector, uh, committed us against those uh, Iraqi aircraft. And initially it was two MiG-29s chasing them down. So we, we just lit the afterburners and put them in a cutoff position, kind of intercept uh, to get there quickly and got there just in time to where they, they came off the Navy package and then headed Northeast. And it looked a lot like a tactic possibly that we had seen been briefed on or Intel had briefed us on that the Iraqis used against the um, Iranians during their long war. Because right after the MiGs turned away, two more MiGs popped up north of them, about 30 miles north of them. And we turned, I turned my flight to check those guys out and engage them. And they turned out to be MiG-25s down at very low altitude, going very, very fast. And so that was the four-ship we faced at the time. And we still had to respect the other two MiG-29s because if they turned around, uh, then, then it would be, uh, you know, more aircraft coming to the merge, but at that time they didn't. And so I turned the flight in north into the MiG-25s. If you, if you watch the History Channel, they do a recreation of this fight. The, they get some of the directions, <laughs> some of the details a little bit wrong, uh, and it's described in several other books, but uh, hopefully I fill in more details in my book. But basically I, I turned the flight into it. And then the Iraqi Foxbat pilots do a very good job defending against our radar capabilities and our potential to shoot them at beyond visual range, BVR, with our AIM-7s. And that was a big surprise. And But we were ready for that because we'd been trained against those kind of defensive tactics. So so they when they turned back in, uh, me and my wingman, Cherry Pitts, Larry Cherry Pitts, uh, we got our radars in position. We found them as they came back into the fight, but they were just way too close now. And we had a big, we were very high. They were very low, very fast. And we ended up at a merge. 
which is a visual fight, which we did not expect to happen. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, that's one of those things you're talking about. It's like, you better, it wasn't the plan. Uh, we were going to shoot them at long range and then get out of the fight. But now it was uh, me and my wingman initially two V two, but one of the Fox bats left the fight at very high speed to the South. We didn't have a shot. I didn't have a shot capability. That was the guy I was targeting. And so it became a classic, what we call ACM air combat maneuvering fight where it was me and Cherry, me and my wingman two versus one against the one Fox bat that turned at the merge. And that was probably to his unfortunate demise because he had two F-15s he had to fight against. And he did the best he could. Uh, He was using chaff, radar countermeasures, flares for IR missile countermeasures. And he survived several very close range shots from Cherry. Uh, Cherry's third or fourth shot finally got to him. He actually ejected out of his Fox bat. I didn't see that, but Cherry did. And then my, my aim nine uh, heat seeker followed that up shortly after. And as we were trying to leave the fight, the other Fox bat came in and Cherry saw him. I picked him up in an auto uh, acquisition mode in my radar. And I was able to just quickly convert very close to his six o'clock, but it's the uh, everybody out of burners call that is made that I'm trying to identify is this a Fox bat or an F-15 or a Navy Tomcat since those guys were around earlier. Uh, but I finally figured out by visual recognition more than anything that it was a Fox bat. And, and from that point on, I, I continued the engagement until one of my aim sevens finally blows them up. And so that was probably, uh, yeah, that was an intense fight. Uh, from many perspectives, a uh, lot of temporal distortion. <laughs> you asked, was it surreal? And I said, yeah, it was surreal. But the unique thing was, was how automatic everything was. And that tempo part where you're just doing things based off your training and not have to actually think about them. And that was the benefit of the, how good our training was probably more than what the Iraqi Foxbat pilots had been able, levels of training they'd been able to achieve, even though they were very experienced combat pilots and they executed their tactics very well. Uh, they just, when they got to the visual mirrors, they were, they were in the wrong airplane. So that's basically the way that progressed. And, and that's the way that ended. And that from my book, that's like chapter eight in my book. And that's, that's kind of the nexus of the story. Uh, obviously, uh, both pre-career, post-career, uh, that's what people want to read about uh, mostly. But as I say in the book, for me, it was one data point, but it did validate our training. It did validate the concept of mutual support of the flight lead and the wingman uh, helping each other. In our case, that that made the difference. And that's why we were successful. The engagement and the way you describe in the book and, and just now as well is is very very detailed, very interesting. I mean, it was a real page turner. I, I found the book overall to be extremely enjoyable. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, you go into your your early life and then, you know, of course, the, the fighter pilot stuff, which is great. And then post-fighter pilot. Um, and there's a lot of great takeaways from the book, aside from a great fighter pilot story and career. So I, I can't recommend well, thank the book you. enough. Yeah, <laughs> I really can't recommend the book enough to everybody. It's incredible. And it speaks, to, as you said, the testament of the training. And I, I would almost say the muscle memory, right. That just kind of takes over because you've done it so many times, the repetition. Yeah. That's to me, the, the important aspect of the, 
of our, not just my results or my flight's results, but our squadron's results uh, for Desert Storm uh, is really a testament to the investment in air superiority, technology, and training that came to fruition during Desert Storm. So I, I think that's an important lesson, not just to you know celebrate the results, but to understand how do you achieve those results? Because it's not, you shouldn't take it for granted that it's, that it's gonna happen that way every time. I remember when I was at uh, officer training school, Steve Ritchie, I don't know if you know who Steve Ritchie was, but the he's Vietnamese, basically the, right? yeah, yeah. the last American Vietnam ace. Mm-hmm. Uh, he came to our class. He gave a recounting of his Vietnam experience. And I was just mesmerized. And, I, and maybe that was probably the beginning seed of like, I want to be a, I might want to be a fighter pilot instead of a fly a C-141 or something. Um, so people want to hear those stories, but, but what I really wanted to do, especially when I'm talking to pilots, is get them to understand the realities of combat, yeah. which are different than training. Your training is so important, but you have to train for combat instead of training training to train. And right. it's very easy to lose sight of that. And, and so usually when I talk to people now, it's more on that that motivational, how do you establish standards of excellence? Yeah. How do you recognize those? How do you promote those? What are the realities of combat? And, and the, one of the realizations I came to was, and this is not my observation. I'm in fact, I was a little bit surprised that I, that I came to this understanding is that not everybody is going to have the same level of aggressiveness in combat. Hmm. And that's an age-old experience of combat. Right. Um, and so I read a book at well after my Air Force career. It was called On Killing, O-N, On Killing, K-I-L-L-I-N-G. And I think Grossman is the author. And it talks about the psychology of warfare. And the age-old problem is, unless you're a psychopath, right. humans are not programmed to kill other human beings. Yeah. And so he said, like in World War II, the average infantryman, maybe only 10 or 20 percent of a unit would actually fire their guns. Wow. You know, I, I can't remember. The exact, it was a yeah. very low percentage. Less than or half. if they did fire them, they would actually fire them at the enemy <laughs> rather than just shooting. Yeah. Blindly. And so so training, a lot of the emphasis in training over the years, they knew that. And so in the modern aerial combat, they try to overcome that. And uh, I had no hesitation to hit the pickle button and fire missiles in combat because I had trained through many simulations that this was a target in front of me. Right. And I didn't hesitate. And my flight was very aggressive. Me and my wingman were very aggressive, not just on that engagement, but through the war. But I didn't always see that consistently. Uh, and it made me start to wonder why that is. And now I understand it's just the human psychology that um, it's not just self-preservation. Sometimes it's just like you're, you may, you can participate in a war, but wars are combat is a big open environment and there's people at the knife points edge. And then there's people participating, but kind of on the fringe, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and it's very easy to select which one of those you want to be, right? <laughs> you know, and 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 you're all participating, so you all have value in the fight. But but different aspects of a unit 
will maybe fight harder than others. And I can't quantify that or qualify it. That's just, it's there, it's natural. And so the thing I, in presenting my story is, is how as a combat fighter unit, do you create that level of expertise, that level of esprit mm-hmm. um, within a unit to where you become an, a, a more effective combat unit? And I think you can apply that to any, especially any specialized combat unit like special ops or, or something like that, where you have a unique, unique ex- expertise and ability. You still have to collectively be able to use that as a unit. So I, I figured that out after Desert Storm, and it became the focus of my training philosophy of how I continue to try to train fighter pilots is you have to prepare them for combat, not just to, you know pass their next upgrade check ride or whatever or check ride or whatever is you have to prepare them for combat and that's not an easy task Uh, and the farther you get away from combat experience within the culture of the organization the harder it is to to keep a handle on that what I was referring to earlier about the the motivational speaker I mean I think there's lessons here for people in business and leadership Outside of combat, outside of you know the MiG twenty five and all that stuff, I, I think there's a you've got a lot of really powerful lessons that are based on your experiences, but I think would translate to other areas. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. I'd be happy to do a TED talk. If yeah. Ever <laughs> well, yeah. I uh, so no, I, I that I think you you should honestly. I mean, if there's if there be a way for you to do it, because you've got the the life experience to back it up. Yeah. And, you know, and I, and I, I, I'm glad you could see that and, and, and make a connection because yeah. And then once again, that was, I was, I was writing this book, not for aviation enthusiasts. I, I knew that that would be the selling point for most of it, but I, I really did want to make it a story about life and, and those important, you know, things we learn and how to apply them and how to make ourselves better and how to make our community culture or business uh, environment better. And so, um, yeah, those are universal, I think. And uh, and especially when you get into like a, a, you know, management level position or program manager, like you said, is, is how do you get the best? How do you, how do you innovate? How do you, how do you make progress? How do you get the best out of everybody? Not just for the project or the company, but the fact that you're actually trying to create value within the individual's life experience through that process. And yeah, that's, that's a tough challenge. <laughs> it is. It is. And I, I, I have a mantra that I always use is always add value, right. In any situation, as much as you can walk away, having added some value. Yeah. And that's a very important. And, um, and I kind of present that at the end of my book in the last chapter is when you make every decision based off of a value orientation, and especially when that value and orientation is is towards the human being, <laughs> right. the individual involved, uh, you're generally always going to make the right decision. And I discovered that, unfortunately, I became pretty A-type personality post-Desert Storm. Um, I don't know if people recognize that. I'm sure some people were at the wrong end of that. <laughs> but it was all motivated towards that, uh, the, the mission. The mission is so important and being prepared for combat. And so, um, but at the end of my career, uh, when I became a squadron commander, I kind of realized 
if I made a decision based off of what I thought was best for the Air Force or best for the mission, lots of times it was the wrong decision. Yeah. And and I'd forgotten the lessons that I'd been taught somewhere along the way early on. And I came to that re-realization that if and it's it's a cliche in the military and in the Air Force, take care of the people and the people will take care of the mission. But you lose sight of that so easily. Yeah. <laughs> and and especially when you're in a position of responsibility, you think you have to make micromanage, like you said. And so uh, I came to that realization. And, and from that point on, every time I made a decision and I put the person first to create value for that person in their career or just their personal life, always, always 100% worked out much better, not just for that person, but for the Air Force. There you and go. I, I could actually quantify that in many instances of how I kept somebody in, I got them to the right assignment and, and things like that. That that was probably even more than my combat experience. The most rewarding aspect of my career was at the very end uh, of the some of the struggles I had to go through at the end, but the value I could create in that process by far the most rewarding aspect of my career. Absolutely. And you, you I think you refer to it as uh, paying a debt of gratitude. Yeah, mm -hmm. we have to always appreciate everything, the good and the bad, and then repay that somehow. You talk about in the book, when you're in Desert Storm, when you were flying, what ended up being called Cap OCA missions, uh, those were east of Baghdad to try to prevent the Iraqi fighters from fleeing into Iran. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? I'm so glad you asked me that question. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I think the quote was, you know, you give people enough time and more, they'll come up with something stupid. And I can remember reading stories from the Vietnam era of like, who ordered this mission? <laughs> it's like, what are we doing? And I never expected it to happen to us. But um, so, so after my events on January 19th, and at the same time, uh, Rico Rodriguez and Mole Underhill were shooting down two MiG-29s in very close proximity. Basically, on January 19th, the Iraqis came out with their most aggressive tactics. And I found out later, they actually came out trying to shoot down an F-15 that day. And they sent out their, some of their most experienced, best pilots, their best tactics. It didn't work. <laughs> And they, they got, you know, hammered pretty hard. And you don't think, well, we only shot down like four or five airplanes. Like, what's that? It's like the idea of air superiority is not always about numbers. It's about making sure the enemy realizes they're not going to be successful. Mm -hmm. And we accomplished that. So, so we achieved what I would call air superiority three days into the war on January 19th. And after that, the Iraqis stood down for a while. And then uh, the re folks at Riyadh decided to start going after them in their shelters, their hardened shelters, which were not so hardened. Uh, and they were using F-15Es and F-111s to uh, drop laser-guided bombs and destroy, basically destroy all their frontline fighters on the, on the ground. So, uh, so what started happening about two weeks into the war is the Iraqis tried to, well, and I don't know if this was like, I doubt that it was an order from Saddam, but it might've just been an order from the Air Force or self-preservation from the, from the lower levels. But they started taking off and flying mostly to Iran. They would go into Syria too. And 
from the operational perspective, it had no impact. In fact, from my units, my perspective, my unit was like, great. I said, there's one less Iraqi <laughs> fighter I have to worry about. Right. Um, they're probably not coming back. But, you know, it started playing on the media. And we'd get a little bit of CNN broadcasts, and they were playing it up like, why are all these Iraqi aircraft getting away? And it became, I think, a little political at that point from my perspective. And then not long after that, they came up this mission. And uh, all of our all of our CAP counter air patrols, uh, combat air patrols, uh, they all had names to them. And so they put this one between the Baghdad SAM rings, the SA-2 rings in Baghdad, and the Iranian border east of Baghdad. And literally, it was about a 20 or 30 mile strip of land, airspace wow. and land, airspace above it that you had to operate in. And that was, that was a very, very tight location because we're up at 30,000 feet. And so just from the perspective of being able to point your radar down and see somebody maybe taking off close to you or trying to sneak in underneath you, it was almost untenable. And they wanted us to be out there for six hours at a time. Ooh. And it's like, this is crazy. <laughs> and the other thing we found is uh, the Iraqis didn't shoot at us too much. We avoided the F-15s. We avoided the Baghdad Sam uh, area because we had no reason to be in there. Right. But if you stayed in one place for very long, they would park either a Sam or some very high caliber AAA uh, that would go up to twenty five or thirty thousand feet oh, wow. uh, underneath you, and they'd find out your altitude and they'd start shooting at you, um, just hoping to get lucky. The Sams were not normally guided; they just used them as high explosive big artillery. They would just launch it up ballistically to the altitude you were at. So uh, nobody liked that mission, but uh, it was, uh, we had to do it. It was our tasking, but I came up with better ways of doing it, which I said, I, Hey, we can, we can rove through the Cindy cap, but we don't have to stay there. And the other thing is what we found is if we just stayed in the Cindy cap, they would just go around us. They knew we were there. So, yeah. so what I asked was, Asked my pilots to do is do one spin in the Cindy cap, then go somewhere else, move 30, 40 miles north, come back through there, move 30 or 40 miles south, be unpredictable. And once we started doing that, we started catching Iraqi, surprising Iraqi. We didn't get them all, but we started surprising Iraqi aircraft that were trying to get to Iran. And I think we got five or six more shoot downs uh, after that. So that did two things. It made the Cindy Cap much more safer to operate in, even though maybe that was not the intent of what the generals wanted us to do. <laughs> it was a much better execution of it for us. And it was much more effective in being able to, the Iraqis didn't know where we were going to be at any given time. So, so by adapting randomness or uncertainty, you were able to execute better? Yeah. You had some of your squadron mates strafe a truck during the Gulf War, and you yourself were taught how to strafe in the Eagle from a former A-7 pilot. Can you share how you set up and perform strafing in the Eagle? You want me to tell you how to do it? or, or Just the overall experience or what it was like. Oh, or... okay. <laughs> yeah, no, not not the procedures, like line up at 6,000 and done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, well, the part of that backstory is the guys that strafed the Iraqi truck and didn't have much success at it, but they finally hit it. Uh, they had not been taught how to strafe. They got grounded. Because it was like not a, it was not a mission we were tasked to do. And so we were told by our wing commander, by direction of Riyadh, that 
we could not decide to strafe any targets on the ground unless the ACE, the air control element chief on the AWACS, the lead uh, controller on the AWACS directed us to, unless we were formally tasked or directed by the AWACS. And so by that time, our roving caps were not just in Cindy Cap. We were going all around uh, Baghdad, up to the north, to the east, to the west, and, and so forth. And we were just looking for anything that was moving. But we found some Iraqi airplanes, large airplanes, like transport airplanes, which were high-priority targets on the ground at two different air bases at Balad, which is pretty well known. And the other one was called Samara East, which was northeast of Baghdad. And so the, uh, we told, reported them to the AWACS. I won't go into all the details uh, to keep this short, but he goes, yeah, go ahead and strafe. He was, I understand ACE direct strafe. He goes, yeah, it's like, you don't have to tell me twice. <laughs> and so, so my old weapons school, uh, weapons officer from Eglin, Mongo Robbins, he was, he was a guest visitor to our squadron and he got to fly some combat missions, which was awesome that my, one of my former mentors was flying with me. So he was number three and we had briefed, Hey, what if we do get tasked to strafe, how to do it? I just gave him a quick, like 10 minute, here's how you do it. And he rolled in on Samara East and just took out the uh, Iraqi transport airplane on that base, got a direct hit on it. It's like, good job. And then on the way home, they go, Hey, go back by Balad and strafe that one. You reported some AN-12 Cubs there. And it's okay. So me and Cherry rolled in on that airfield and I know he hit his target. I never saw if I hit mine or not, but then three and four rolled in uh, and they weren't supposed to. And so, and I had read stories from world war II about strafing German airfields in Europe. And it's like, you did not want to be the last guy across the airfield because they wouldn't hold their fire until the last airplane strafed. And then they would try to shoot that. And that's what happened to Mongo. And he almost got shot down by a Roland surface air missile that was protecting the base. So it was pretty exciting. Uh, we got told, don't ever do that again. <laughs> <laughs> but the directive from the ACE saved us, so we didn't get grounded. As you mentioned, you do go into great detail in the book, and it's it's a real page turner. I, I very much enjoyed uh, reading all of the events in Desert Storm and again, in, you know, in your early life and then later in your career in a more leadership uh, mentor role. The last question I'd like to ask is, what advice can you give to a young person who wants to become a fighter pilot? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, sometimes I get asked that. Sometimes I'll get asked like by a parent who has a young child with them, and they find out I'm a fighter pilot. It's like, oh, he really likes airplanes, or she really likes airplanes. And how do you do that? So I always tell people, regardless of the age, it's like, okay, first of all, do really good in school study hard. And if you have an opportunity to take flight lessons, I would always recommend that to people before they go in the Air Force. I mean, the Air Force will train you, mm -hmm. but the more experience, air experience you can bring, uh, the better you're going to generally do at pilot training. And sometimes that's a deciding factor in getting a fighter or not. But this is advice that a friend of mine, his name was uh, Bob Zombie was his... <laughs> call sign Bob Zombie Scott. And this was on my first assignment at Kadena. And I was an experienced wingman at the time. And actually I was waiting my turn to start flight lead upgrade, which is the first significant step in your progress as a fighter pilot to go from wingman to flight lead. And I went out as zombies wingman one day, and I was probably just being a little bit too proactive in voicing my opinion about our tactics or our maneuvering that day. 
Uh, and Zombie would probably say I was being annoying, but he kind of took it well and he just let me do what I was doing. And he understood I was chomping at the bit. Right. And, uh, and we got back and he didn't, he didn't like chew me out or anything, but he, he recognized what was going on. And he said, Cluso, I just want, and this is probably one of the best pieces of advice I ever had. And this is what I would pass on to somebody who wants to do anything whether your goal is be a fighter pilot or whatever your life goal is, is he said, Clouseau, just do the absolute best at what you're doing today. And then everything else will fall into place after that. That's awesome. And I thought about it. I go, Oh, he's right. Yeah. And I took that. (laughs) And so that's what I would say to somebody, whether you want to be a fighter pilot or whatever your, career goal is and i don't care what it is you know (laughs) be the best at that but not just always trying to be your best at your goal you have to get there so be the best at what you're doing today and your goals will naturally move in the right direction and sometimes you'll end up finding your goal with something different actually in that process I've heard it sort of similarly put. Hard work always pays off, right? It does. Yeah. Even if it's almost like a Zen thing, right? Because even when you're just doing a a quote unquote mundane task, if you really dedicate yourself to it and you're present in the moment, you get so much more out of it. Yeah. So both aviation fans and just people in general who are looking for some good, almost like life advice, right? Because it's that the whole journey and you do a really good job of saying, you know, in the early years, this happened and this was the end of my childhood, so to speak. And then this happened and that happened. And you paint this picture, that's the trajectory of your life. And you tie it all together um, so neatly. And it really concludes with, with everything, you know, about, about gratitude. I really appreciate your comments about my book because that was my intent. And so the fact came across and you, you connected with that. That's the best compliment I could ever receive. So I appreciate that. And I, I truly appreciate the opportunity to, to do the podcast with you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the interview, I strongly encourage you to pick up a copy of Rick's book. He goes into much more detail and there are a lot of great stories. You can get the book as a hardcover or digital Kindle edition. I'll leave a link in the show notes.